Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Conquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a pair of friends who, as you'll hear, have provided emotional support and advice to each other throughout interesting, winding careers over the past couple of decades. Mary Timoney and Joe Wong. Now, Timoney is probably best known as the leader of the 90s indie rock band Helium, but her catalog goes far beyond it. Prior to that band, Timoney came up in the DC punk scene as part of the band Autoclave, and after, she's been part of Wild Flag with members of Sleater Kinney, fronted a band called X-Hex, and released records under her own name. That's mostly why we're here today, because Timoney is about to release her first solo record in 15 years, and it's fantastic. It's called Untame the Tiger, and it picks up on some of the psych elements that Timoney has wrangled in the past, and even includes a guest appearance by the former drummer of Fairport Convention, Dave Maddox, as you'll hear in this chat. Untame the Tiger was also produced in part by today's other guest, Joe Wong. It comes out February 23rd, but check out a little bit of the song Dominoes right here. When you said it was forever as I mentioned, today's other guest is Joe Wong, who grew up in Milwaukee and played in indie rock bands before finding his creative path in two amazing ways, as a composer for TV and film and as a podcast host. He's written music for the likes of Russian Doll and Master of None, and he helms the popular podcast The Trap Set, which originated as a way to spotlight his favorite drummers, but has since expanded into deep and incredible conversations with all kinds of creative folks. But a few years back, partly at the urging of his friend Mary Timoney, Wong began writing songs for himself rather than for other people's scores. He just released his second album, Mere Survival, and while it still has late 60s big pop vibes, it gets even bigger and weirder than his first. It features not only Timoney, but also Pearl Jam's Matt Cameron, among other guests. Check out a little bit of the title track from Mere Survival right here. With every breath, we're sharpening of This conversation took place shortly after two huge release shows for Mere Survival, for which Wong gathered a 20-piece band, so you'll hear a bit about that, as well as some thoughts on songwriting itself. Wong and Timoney also get deep on how their parents' illnesses brought them together, and about self-sabotage and perfectionism, and much, much more. Enjoy. Hi, okay. this is Joe Wong, and I'm here with... Mary Timoney. Mary, do you remember when we met? I was thinking about this this morning. I I actually remember even what you were wearing, which is weird, because it's not like I have a great memory, but I do remember meeting you in Chicago with Bob Weston, and you were wearing a red puffy coat. You came down to the show. Okay, I think that would have been 2003. Yeah. Are you basing that on the coat? or the? I think the coat and my memory, but <laughs> I think it was... Yeah. When you started playing with Garland of Hours. Was it? With, with oh, must have been with Devin. Brendan Canty on bass and Devin Ocampo on drums. And then you were also doing your own album that would become X-Hex. But I don't think that album came yeah. out yet. The Mary Timoney right. solo album, not to be confused with the band of the same name that you were also in, which is confusing. Yes, yeah, true. It's very confusing. Does that ever become an issue for you? Well, no one really knows the X-Hex record, so no. <laughs> no one really knows that record because the label went out of business like two weeks after. Lookout Records. Yeah. It was on Lookout Records. Uh, so that worked a out A major cultural force, actually, um, in the previous yeah. decades. True. But that was when they were kind of winding down. And they were kind of reinventing themselves for a while. Like Ted Leo put out a couple records with them. Yeah. yeah. So they were kind of branching out from the Bay Area pop punk kind of thing that they were known True. for in the early days. guess it didn't work out for them. <laughs> but hey, Joe, one thing I know about you is you have the best memory of anyone I've ever known. And I know you pretty well, I would say, I think. You're one of my best friends. But does anybody really know each other? Do we really no. know each other? I think we do, actually. That's a constant source of, of like, uh, 
what's it called? Ennui, not ennui. Anxiety, existential anxiety for me. Do you mean fe- feeling known? Does anyone really know each other? That's a huh? You mean like the the sense that you're not that you're not truly known and that you don't truly know someone else? It's I have anxiety about like, do we ever really connect with people? I haven't really thought about it that deeply. Like, I feel like connection is so you never know if you're going to lose it. I guess so. It's that scares me. Well, I think you always know that you are going to lose it at some point. <laughs> yes. And then, it, but also, die, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. But also, in a way, you don't because even people that are gone still, you still feel connected to them, deep connection with them during their life. Totally. And that's the one thing I want to talk to you about. About when I die? <laughs> <laughs> no. Let's get back to this. Okay. So the first time we met, I was wearing my red puffy coat. Yes, you were. What I remember about that is you were playing at Shuba's in Chicago, and it was you and Amy Dominguez and Devin Ocampo and Brendan Canty, and then... I just have to say one thing, Joe. We all slept over at Bob Weston's house. That's why you mentioned... I I should have known to not toot my own horn about how proud I was that I remembered the coat you were wearing, because your memory's insane. I think music is my mnemonic scaffolding. Like it's it's the skeleton for my memory. What do you mean? That's really interesting. Like musical memories are the scaffolding that connect my non-musical memories. Just like, well, if I think about when a particular song was out on the radio, then I can remember, okay, I was in second grade and this is who my teacher was and all that kind of stuff. What it smelled like when I heard the song, (laughs) you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. But what I remember about that too is we went and slept over at Bob Weston's house. Bob had maybe Bob had produced an album for you before then. You knew him? Yeah. I worked with him on the Mountains record, solo record. He um, mixed some stuff. And also, Corey Rusk came out to the show, I remember. And the reason I remember all this is because Bob, Brendan, yourself, Corey were all kind of giants in my mind. And I don't know that I'd met many of you before. Whoa, it's all these superstars. The other thing I remember is that you were still smoking cigarettes. You had a blue box of cigarettes oh. and Devin had a yellow box See, of cigarettes. This is what I'm saying. You were, you actually remember like every detail. <laughs> like it's really intense. Well, what I, I also remember is looking at all the tapes that Bob had in his house. He had all these reels from wow. bands he had recorded or bands that he had been in. And I thought it was so Ooh. cool. But Joe, what, what were you up to at that point in 2003? I was a waiter. I was, really? yeah, I was a waiter uh, in Milwaukee at an Italian restaurant. Oh and I was, Whoa. I had just, I was scoring my first film. The, the first film I scored yep. was called The Yes Men with some filmmakers right. from Milwaukee. I was playing in a bunch of different kinds of bands. I was not playing rock music at the time. I was playing more jazz jazz stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was in a Latin band. Mm -hmm. And like, I started playing with these guys that had moved to Milwaukee from Senegal. And so I was just doing all sorts of stuff that was not rock related. I think I was, Uh at the time, I thought I was done playing indie rock anyway. But how long before that? I know there's, you've talked about how you had a a whole record that you wrote and recorded. Oh, yeah. That was in 2001 and 2002 that I made that. Yeah. It wasn't long after that, actually. Yeah, it felt like much longer because I was younger and any events that happened felt more monumental. So in between, I moved to D.C. and played with some of the people that we mentioned. Right. And um, it didn't work out. And it was a terrible experience in some ways because I had such high expectations for it. And I thought, Mm. all right, this is going to be the band. This is, and you know, it was at a point in my life where I was looking for a band to fulfill multiple roles, like uh, Mm. almost like being in a family or a gang or something, like have a bigger part of my identity threw everything into it. That's actually such a good description. And it just wasn't the right match at the time. Right. But that's how we met. And that's why I always, I always remembered how that felt really wrong in the moment, but how it led to all sorts of 
relationships that have been so great. So it's almost like like what we've discussed with songwriting. Sometimes you'll spend so much time writing a song and then realize later that it's not right. But you have to do yeah. that to get to the right song sometimes. Right. But it's sort of like the universe was putting you there. It wasn't your ultimate goal, but it so much came out of that. And and not only just meeting people, but learning what you don't want to do. Yeah. And I was pretty depressed, I think, at that point in my life because yeah. I think I was just trying to channel my energies into something. And so I was playing with all these different musicians to try to challenge myself and f become better as a drummer at the time. And I, I just felt the need to work really hard, but I didn't really have a vision of how that would manifest. And it was kind of weird, a weird time, like where I was, I just felt like other friends that had finished school were moving on into their lives and getting good jobs or starting families or doing adult seeming mm -hmm. things. Sometimes when people are like super lost when are you not that you were, but the way you're describing it, that that lost feeling like really good things come out of that. It's like a growing period. Well, I stumbled on what became a career for the last 20 years in scoring. Yes. So much has come out of that for you. And playing with all those people was actually really great. I mean, it just brought in my my ear and and my appreciation for different kinds of music and um and then yeah it's funny only like the next year you called me to tour with you right that was only about a year later after we met because the drummer that you were playing with at the time was going out with another band i don't know if we've ever really talked about this but i totally relate to that that period when you're trying to fi figure out what you're doing especially in a like a as a musician because it's such a non traditional thing to do with your life especially if your family aren't musicians or something but my time after when I was like 22 to 27 it was like hell I was so depressed and like so disconnected from people felt like I was fucking up that was also the time that you were doing uh you were in the band helium right yeah I guess what I mean is more just like right after college before Maybe for the first couple of years of helium doing stuff. Yeah. From the outside, I was like, oh, that looks so cool. They're on 120 minutes. They're, they've got it made. They're, you know, they're living the dream. Yeah. I, I don't know what the hell I was doing. And I was really unhappy. And yeah, it was just, it's a mess. I just didn't like that period of my life. Like the early I was going to say that really period hard. lasted, it comes and goes because I felt yeah, and absolutely. I, I mean, it lasted a while. <laughs> Even after I had some success. Uh, it's still, it's then really it, hard. Then yeah. in my 30s, when I first moved out here, uh, I was, yeah. you know, struggling to make ends meet, even though I was working on stuff right. that people saw. I was scoring uh, shows that people liked, but it took a couple years to get established in LA mm. and it was like that whole yeah. feeling all over again like maybe I made a mistake yeah I don't feel like I really know what I'm doing actually yeah you know what I mean like I'm just trying to be happy really <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing are you you know it's like music music is the only thing that I know makes me feel like a normal person because if I'm not doing that I don't know what the fuck to do with myself I feel like an alien in the world what was happening with me in my early 30s is not only was I broke, but I also wasn't getting any joy from playing music. <laughs> so that's when I yeah, started having moves, like a right. crazy, yeah. I was like, I, I wouldn't mind being broke if I was getting that same amount of joy that I used to get out of music. If I was feeling yeah. that new relationship energy that I had, you know, the, the, the feeling yeah. that lured me into this life. Right. In my early 20s, I was like, I just need to find the right people to start a band with. I just need to get the right project going. But that's something that I, I totally relate to. And then in my 30s, I was like, I had found cool people to play with. I was playing with Marnie Stern at the time, who's great, and I respect mm -hmm. and loved. And I was just like not feeling any joy. Uh, I was feeling like a muted sense of satisfaction maybe from playing mm -hmm. and playing as well as I could at the time. But uh, 
uh, I, I don't know. And so it was scary and I had to, it took me a minute to admit it. And I, and I was trying to decide, I was like, well, it would be disrespectful to all the other people that are doing this if I can't either figure out what the issue is or do something else. Yeah. When you say you don't know what you're doing, what do you mean? You don't know what you're doing with your life trajectory or you don't know what you're doing as a musician or? Uh, I don't know what I mean, Joe. It's not like I have some grand plan of, you know what I mean? It's just like, oh, I like making stuff and I don't know. I was, you know, I, I'm sort of like a kind of person that goes through the world just going on. Maybe I'll, I guess I'll just do this. I don't have like this grand scheme. I don't think that's so uncommon, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think a lot of the folks that I've spoken to for my podcast are mm -hmm. really good at surfing through life in the sense that surfing, they have yeah, yeah. really good intuition. And so whatever the world throws at them, they can react yeah. and find a path forward. But there are some people I've spoken right. to that are really strategically minded and plot their success mm -hmm. in a very deliberate way. Different brains. And I think I I think I have a tendency to want to be like a strategist, but I also don't think that it works. It's not 100% effective. I think I see myself in between those two extremes. I do too, actually. I think that's one of your skills. You have a lot of skills, Joe. You're incredibly talented. Thank you. Yeah, no, I see you sort of, actually, I think that's one thing that's cool about you is I see you wearing a lot of different hats and have a lot of different skills with all this music stuff. But you play songwriting, like film stuff, directing a 20-person band, like a, there's a lot of things that you're really good at. I think it goes back to the period where we first met when I was waiting tables, because I was also fixing computers, teaching drum mm -hmm. lessons, and yeah, I just started scoring for film. Tried doing all these different things because I needed to in order to make ends meet at the time, but also because mm -hmm. I I like having lots of different irons in the fire. I think I'm more creative if I'm not throwing everything into just one thing. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would come up with an idea for a song when I was fixing a computer or something, but not when I was mm. trying to come up with an idea for a song. You know what right. I mean? Oh, yeah. It's almost I, I like absolutely leaving space for my subconscious mind to do its thing. Right. Super. I don't know how to do it without doing that. I mean, I've seen a, you go through huge changes, actually, because when I first started... Okay, so like when we went on that tour... So we first played together in 2004, 2005. Right. We went on that Spoon tour. For your album, X-Hex. Yeah, we were opening for Spoon. We went on tour in my um, Subaru station yeah. wagon. And that was really that was when we really got to know each other because it was just the two of us in a station wagon right. traversing the country for a, a couple weeks. Yeah, yeah. It was a pivotal event in my life because I really didn't think I was going to play in rock bands anymore. And then it oh, seemed like right. really fun to go out with you because I was a fan of your work. And I was also a fan of Spoon, so I thought that would mm -hmm. be fun. And I had never played shows that large before, really. Spoon had just released an album called Gimme Fiction, and it was their biggest right. album to date. And we were playing to maybe about a 1,000 people a night or something like that. And it was really exciting and fun. I can't believe that I I was fearless enough to like just play with two of us like drums and guitar that seems so hard to me now it's like really intense you can't mess up because everyone can hear it you know? <laughs> so we did that and then for a, I would say years maybe you mentioned to me we would have these talks every once in a while that you wanted to make a record oh yeah I mean I think I the first thought of it came when we were on that tour I said hey maybe I should try maybe I should try writing some songs I remember having these long talks about um, you wanted to make a record of your own songs and um, and I would encourage you and would talk about it and stuff. It was sort of a theme. And then suddenly something happened and you got the guts and you started and you did it. Yeah. Well, it was longer than six years. It was like 15 or something. Oh, shit. Really? What changed was I had gotten comfortable scoring. Uh, so I, you know, I scored hundreds of hours of 
well, maybe not quite that much, but like, you know, I'd written hundreds of pieces of music in the intervening time for films and TV. And I also, when I was going through my early 30s depression uh, as part of a kind of proactive step to figure out what was happening and and to try to determine a path forward, I started a podcast called The Trap Set, where I basically was trying to work through my own neuroses with drum heroes. And, um, you know, the, the feeling at the time was that I wasn't connected to the joy of making music. And I wanted to figure out if other people had experienced that phenomenon. And I kind of, in my mind was like, well, if everybody else is still having a blast and and this is limited to me, then maybe it just is an indication that this is not the right uh, path for me. And I should just go back to school and do something else that I'm Mm -hmm. interested in. But the funniest thing happened is just by asking the questions, well, I found out that a a lot of people go through phases like I was going through, but that was almost secondary. It was almost just asking the questions and connecting with people kind of reawakened that joy in a very unexpected way. I mean, I felt like I was connecting with people through conversation in the same way that I would aspire to connect with people by playing music with them. So that, I think, served as the bridge from helping other people tell their stories to being comfortable enough to tell mm-hmm. my own. And I say comfortable enough because I was not comfortable at all. If, as you remember, when we when mm-hmm. I started it, I kept trying to self-sabotage. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, you were really feeling it. I remember uh, you wanted to convince me not to out feeling the hate for myself <laughs> yeah no i remember like viscerally you were nervous yeah but you worked through it which is so cool well i i think you were a big part of it because you'd made a bunch of albums despite suffering from yeah. the same kind of self-doubt that i, I was there's a part of me that was like shameless and would like put out stuff even though but i wouldn't i would fuck it up I would put it out, but it would be what I considered. Yeah, I would fuck it up in different ways. Anyway, we all right. have our own. Well, because then. Neurotic. Yeah. Because then if people didn't like it, maybe right. it was Safer. less less hurtful because you would you could agree with them that you hadn't. Yes, that's what I did. It wasn't like a complete was, representation of what your vision was. Yes, for it. I did everything halfway for a long time. I like made it made sure it was a little bit junky and that I didn't actually like it because it felt safer. Totally crazy. I, I mean, I think that was also just part of an aesthetic at the time with lo-fi stuff, particularly yeah, right. records that were on Matador, which is what you were, which is the label you were on early on. It yeah, is like, that's true. It, you know, they were putting out four track albums by Guided by Voices where it was like, yeah, just a verse true. is a song right. or, um, you know, even Pavement was sloppy you know even though you you know in retrospect you're saying that it was kind of a self-sabotaging move uh it it actually happened to line up with the aesthetic of the 90s in indie rock you're right is it maybe it was it was why i took it on so readily but okay well here's an here's a question for you another thing that i think was going on in your life around then was what happened with your dad Yeah, my dad had a stroke when I was 29, and uh, it wasn't clear whether or not he was going to recover, and I had to kind of step in and help run his life for a while. And my siblings were all younger than me, and um, eventually everybody was helping out, but for a while I was taking on the brunt of the work. So that was traumatic to see somebody... Well, to kind of have that role reversal of becoming the parent type figure or guardian over my own parent, and then just having to reckon with all the skeletons in his closet that I was exposed to during that time, um, because I had to go through his life and kind of sort through things. And um, I think it simultaneously made me more conscious of my desire to want to be in a position where I'm not 
vulnerable in the same way that he was uh, because he didn't have insurance when he got sick. He just didn't have his life very well organized, which was shocking to me because when I was growing up, he was much more put together. I think the stroke was kind of the culmination of his life falling apart. So there was this whole, there was like a new awareness that I, I started caring about making money or, um, you know, being more organized and being more thoughtful with how I set up my life. But then also the opposite was true in the sense that I became aware of how things can be snatched away from you at any moment and that I was not manifesting my dreams and that I needed to try that because who knows how much time we have. Yeah. So it was like this this simultaneous uh, awareness that certain things matter a lot, but also nothing matters. Yeah, that's why I wanted to talk about this, because I think we share this in our lives recently where we, you know, we had a similar experience. And I think you went through it first, and I was watching you deal with everything with your dad, and it was super intense. and. And then it was my turn and I had this very similar thing with my parents that just happened in the past five years where they both got sick at the same time and I'm just, just me taking care of them for five years. Yeah, it was like really dramatic. My dad got dementia really fast and then I had to suddenly be the caretaker for them. Uh, and it was a lot. It was really stressful. It was really hard but I'm grateful that I went through it because it made me feel closer to my dad than I had in years. And and I feel like you had a similar experience. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's the silver lining is all the stuff we get out of it. You have to go through really hard times sometimes in life. And if you, you know, the good thing about it is you, you get stronger and you grow and you learn and stuff, but it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt also. I think in both of our cases, it made us closer with the people we were taking care of. Yep. Yep. And I think it, for me, it helped me prioritize things and also let go of things that didn't matter in my life. I was like, I'm not going to sweat the small stuff because like every day I have to decide, you know, which psychiatric hospital do I take my dad to? Like, you know what I mean? Because he, he was having like lots of crazy behavior stuff. So like worrying about that stuff, I don't. I'm not going to worry about like, what recording studio do I go to? That's fun. I yeah. think I, my priorities completely shifted. I think it also makes you aware that it doesn't really matter. Like you go in and you'll make it work no matter which studio you go to. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. 
Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of The Talkhouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, the Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out. So that's another thing we've sort of really bonded over, I think, or helped each other through. I can say you absolutely helped me so much through that time um, because you had been through it. Yeah, and I think even though you hadn't been through it, having someone to talk to when I was, I mean, we started the first album when, when, when my, my dad was still here. Um, but right. he was in, he wasn't in good shape. And, uh, yeah, just, I think even that, that first album is sort of about the experience of losing people. Right. It wasn't deliberately that it was just, that's what the, that's what came to mind when the lyrics were materializing. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't yeah, know yeah. what any of the songs are about when they're being written. Usually. I don't think songwriters usually that doesn't work. I don't know anybody that decides. I mean, maybe for some people I, I don't. So I, I think you that. probably could as a game, you know, if, if, it, if you were doing yeah, it like an oblique yeah, strategy, yeah. like write a song about the color blue, you know, or whatever. Maybe, um, yeah. Some people probably do that. I can't do that. I have to just completely dream, you know? Yeah. I think, uh, you know, one, one thing that I've taken from scoring films and TV and applied to the way that I make records now is all of these strategies to get my conscious mind out of the way so that I, my subconscious mind is kind of driving the bus. So like, Working quickly is one. Mm -hmm. Having someone to, to be accountable to is another. Like, I feel like when I'm working with you on my record, you're the lifeguard and I'm jumping in the ocean and then vice versa uh, if if I'm producing yeah. you. Right. I even use a timer when I write songs. And, and the, also the idea mm -hmm. of writing a lot and picking later, like letting future oh, yeah. me be the judge and like That's just really not good. judging it and just trusting that um the songs will come like you know mm -hmm. for my job i have to write uh, you know up to six episodes of music every week so there's not time to like think about oh what's going to happen with this what's you know what's my plan i know when i need to deliver the stuff and then i set up my studio and and everything in it in such a way where i don't have to think everything's ready to be recorded at mm. any given time. And then I just move <laughs> through it. Yeah. And I think it actually ends up turning out better creatively too, than if I were to painstakingly deliberate over every single note that I write. Yeah. 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 I have to get the same thing. I, I, I don't slightly different, but I think I have to get to the point where I just write a bunch of junk and 99% of it I don't want to use. And just once in a while, there'll be something cool. Yeah. I've heard it do that. referred to as fishing. I've heard it referred uh, to, uh, yeah. I remember Buzz from the Melvins called it panning for gold, which I thought it was cooler yeah. than fishing too. But yeah. the it's all an acknowledgement yeah. that the songs are external and that our goal is to become better at harvesting them from the environment in some way. The more you try, the luckier you'll get. Yep. I don't like treating it like a job, like a habit, like I have to do it every day for a certain amount of time. Sometimes that works, but it's also important to acknowledge when it's not working because I think I've tried that and just written some boring things. So I like going through periods of three years when I don't write songs. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being lazy, but... <laughs> no, I think it's probably different for everyone. I mean, here's yeah. the thing is that your mood can affect your perception of it too. Um, so sometimes I'll be having a bad day, but I have to write like 20 pieces of music for a show. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, I'll, I remember thinking like, ugh, all this stuff fucking sucks. What am I going to do? Yeah. And then I listen the next day. I'm like, actually, it's pretty good. And sometimes I write something yeah. and 
forget all about it. Then I hear it like a month or two later, and I'm like, oh, that that's actually good. Huh. And then I can hear where to go with it in a way that I couldn't before. Huh. That's interesting. That author George Saunders says that when he writes a novel, it's written by, you know, several hundred versions of himself, like a team of of selves. Mm-hmm. And I, I relate to that a lot. Yeah. Only way I can do any songwriting at all is like by asking myself later if I like something. Like it's usually later that day or the next day and I get an answer. My brain will answer it without me. I actually don't even ask. The brain, my brain will say yes or no. You must approach songwriting slightly differently because I feel like with the scoring thing, you probably don't have enough time to ask yourself because you got to get it done. Yeah, and the but difference that, too with that is that it's not my ultimate vision. So it's right. it's liberating in a way because I just turn it over mm-hmm. to somebody else and I'm mm-hmm. like, do you like this? It's also vulnerable in a different way because you're asking right. someone to judge you and to to tell you if it's working for them, which is why it's really important that you're working with the right collaborators or that I am at this point, that I'm working with people that I'm on the same wavelength with so that mm-hmm. when they give me feedback, I can trust that they're right and that... Um, if I listen to them, it's going to make it even better. The reason why it took so long for me to release any songs that I wrote is because the compartment, like the part of me that was judging was so roided up for so long. <laughs> it was so what? It was, so it was like on steroids, roided like oh. roided up. It was like a roided up drill instructor that hated everything right. that came its way. So that's that's mm-hmm. my relationship with self had to change in order for me to feel like I even was worthy of releasing work into the world. And I think that that's a constant negotiation, just wondering if it's any good, wondering if we're an impo- you know, if we're imposters or if, you know. One thing that shifted during my whole time with caretaking my parents is my relationship to that stuff changed. So that it used to be that I sort of sided with with my mom, who was sort of critical of me being a musician and that I, part of me felt like I am doing something that doesn't matter. So that, that made it harder to take myself seriously, fully a hundred percent. But as soon as I, the roles reversed with my parents and so that stuff started shifting. So now one thing that's happened and then also the pandemic made me realize that how much music helps me Um, I don't know what I'd do without it if I couldn't listen to, like, music that I love. Like, the thing that I like to do the most, really, you know, like, lately I've gotten really into Jethro Tull, and that's one of the brightest spots of the (laughs) month for me. You know, or when we were all sitting around the Airbnb the other day listening to all of our favorite prog and jazz stuff. Like, that shit means so much to all of us, you know, as people... And as musicians and, I don't know, or good books that we love or mm-hmm. good show, TV shows that we love or good movies that we love or good art or all this stuff. But in my case, so I, what, I, I always knew that, but I always felt like nothing I did could ever approach that level of greatness of this, th- those kind of things that we love. And so that's okay. why I so was you, always just like, I'm not well, that, qualified. Oh, that sucks. But... And I... Yeah, I don't think I don't think that it's quantifiable in that way anymore. No, I mean, I don't no, think I thought on, that on, back on. then on an it's intellectual not, level, but damaged. on an emotional that's, level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that is absolutely wrong. Well, wrong, and I'm so glad that you were you're you know getting in there and and working on not telling yourself that horrible thing anymore because it's not true. I think it was basically there to try to keep me safe, right? Like, try to protect me. Well, we all have our own <sighs> negative things that play in our heads, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I get that. Sucks. But I'm so glad that you're letting it go. Should we talk about uh, the shows that we just played? Okay. Because <laughs> we, we were talking about some of these things during that uh, experience. But how did you feel about... We just played a, an album release for my new album in LA and another show in Seattle. And we did some radio stuff also. 
Uh-huh. And it doesn't sound like a lot uh, to some out, to some of you out there, maybe. But um, we we were playing with like a twenty person ensemble, so it was like a it was a big undertaking for me anyway um, to organize that and put it all together. And you know, it was a substantial investment of time and other resources. Yeah. Um, yeah. What an incredible experience! My God. What did you I mean, the rec- the like? The record is great. Oh, oh, thanks. And yeah, what was what did it feel like for you to do that to play those shows? And like, did you? What's your takeaway? Yeah. No, okay. So yeah, getting to meet because you've played hundreds or thousands of shows at this point. Yeah, I've never life. played in a band with twenty people before. Yeah, and, and twenty like like virtuosos. Like, a, what an incredible experience playing with all of that that level of of talent. That's everybody involved in the band is so good my god um yeah that was a really fun joe you were so calm through the whole thing i guess you prepped a lot but i can't imagine organizing a tour like that it was so fun well i was constantly asking myself if i was i was i was like am i going overboard because i don't believe in the songs enough that i could just do it by myself on the one hand, I was manifesting this dream come true of getting to play with lots of my favorite musicians and realizing mm-hmm. the songs the way that they came to me. You know, just I was just realizing them in the way that I originally heard them when we were writing the album. But then the negative side of me was like, are you being overindulgent by getting this many people? And are, are you hiding away in organization when you should just be writing more stuff. That's how the negative voice manifests now. Um, But now I know how to kind of interact with that negative voice in a more constructive way. And it's not steering the ship as Mm -hmm. much. But yeah, I mean, the answer is there's nothing better to put resources into than um, presenting this music the way I wanted to present it. Yeah. And simultaneously, I'm also thinking of ways of presenting it in without that doesn't require 20 people, (laughs) you know, it's like, it doesn't have to be either or. And if you would have talked to me um, 30 years ago, I think it was a literal dream to play with some of the people in the band. And I would have, at the time I would have dreams where it was like, I'd be at a show for somebody that I loved, like Helium or Soundgarden or something like that. And the drummer broke his arm and someone would come on the PA and ask, does anybody know all the songs? <laughs> it's like this. Aww, it's like literally so a dream cute. come true. Not that I was playing drums, but just getting to play <laughs> so with cute. everybody. Uh, I mean, I, I've, mm-hmm. I've found that that's a common dream among drummers anyway from doing my show. But the nature of music as a social vehicle um, and how some of the artists that inspired me when I first started playing, then I got, I've gotten to know them and collaborate with them 30 years later. That's awesome. It's, it's great. And that's, I think it's the nature of music feeding back onto itself or the nature of humanity Mm -hmm. recycling itself. Even the rehearsals are fun. Like there were more people at the rehearsals than there have been at several shows I've played over the years. (laughs) And they're all so great they're all great what i really like is just the people well I, the one thing that i've learned is i as much as it seemed like a good idea when i tried to do stuff on my own it's just never going to be as good as if i'm playing with really awesome musicians it's always going to be like 50 million times better i think it took you a while to yeah. feel yes that's one of my issues yeah prepared to play with other to, to right. actually, well, when we were making your album, one of the people that we brought in was Dave Maddox, who's one of the great drummers of his generation. And in fact, your favorite drummer of all time, maybe. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'd say, yeah. I think you had a panic attack after he said yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So during the, when my dad and mom were sick and it was the pandemic and I would like be, working on some songs for a record and I go on these long walks and listen to stuff. And, you know, sometimes I would, we would talk, I'd go on walk and I'd talk to Joe and a couple times you were like, Hey, you were like, Hey Mary, like what, 
what's going on with your song? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. And you're like, well, Hey, you should get Dave Maddox. And I just didn't even register with me. It was like, you should get Jimi Hendrix or so. I was like, yeah, that would be cool, but there's no way that would ever happen ever. <laughs> and then, um, I think what happened is I, since everything was so fucking insane in my life with, uh, my parents being sick and all so I was just like, well, what, what, what's wrong with me? Of course I want to do that. <laughs> so then one day I was talking to you and I was like, Hey, let's ask him. And you did like, because you know him from interviewing him for the trap set and literally in Within an hour, like, yeah, you 10 minutes, I think me. it was <laughs> 10 minutes. Yeah. He was like, he said, sure. <laughs> then you freaked out. Well, then I, I had to actually deal with my inner issues, which was, I'm not good enough to play with good musicians, which is what I have my damage um, because it's scary to put yourself out there and to be around people who are really good. It's scary to me because of my psychological <laughs> like problems because <laughs> my, and because of my mental illness. And I definitely had a number of panic attacks. And when we were in the studio, I had to go outside and sit on the ground for half an hour because I was losing my mind. I was so nervous. I don't even know why now. I needed like exposure therapy to like allowing myself to do something that I wanted to do for myself. Like, and Chad is so fucking good and you're so good. Chad Moulter, the bass player. Literally just the idea of allowing myself to be in a room with three people who are taking me seriously on these songs and wanted them to sound really good. And it wasn't like a punk rock thing that we were doing really fast. Um, anyway, it was just a new way of, of, of doing something. And it, I had a, a number of panic attacks. It's interesting and because you, know, you grew up in the punk rock scene of DC, which is yeah. revered by many. I mean, you just went on tour with a band hammered hulls in Japan and hammered right. hulls is on discord records as was yep. your first band, Autoclave, yeah, Autoclave in the late. Right. And uh, the one thing that's interesting about you is that you didn't get into Jethro Tull and then <laughs> get into Minor Threat. And then, you know, whatever. You were immersed the back, in the scene, works. in the DC punk scene. And then later in life, like maybe in your 40s, you started getting into classic rock. <laughs> I know. I'm go backwards. Like, for Although me, I always liked that, it. I always I, liked it. Well, I yeah. loved that stuff when I was a younger kid. And then by the time I was like 14, I would never have admitted to even liking it. it wasn't Classic rock? Yeah, Classic it rock. wasn't cool. Okay. Or even anything exactly. mainstream. Like I've told right. Matt, I, to, well, see, I told Matt Cameron this, our... like I got into Soundgarden, but then Soundgarden had an album on SST. And then once I discovered SST and started ordering stuff from their catalog, I was like, fuck major labels. Soundgarden sold yeah. out, you know? <laughs> that up. was the 90s, though. That was the 90s. I was to I was such a snob in the 90s. I was like, I would never work with a major label. Well, the funny thing, though, the reason I bring that up is because I think you conflate, like, to you, punk rock represents, uh, like, a, a strain of laziness or maybe um lack of commitment to your idea like you you were saying it almost like as a dismissive thing earlier when you said yeah it's not like a punk well, rock thing i mean no okay so that i don't mean traditional punk rock i i guess what i referred to then was that this thing that i do in my brain where i'm like it's good enough i don't have to like try to make this better because i'm a punk do you know what i mean i think that uh yeah the interesting thing is for me i think i was using the opposite cop out where it was like, this isn't perfect. Huh. So I'm not going to do it or not put it out or not. So it's almost like we were kind of yeah. moving in opposite directions. Isn't that funny? We're both. Yeah. For me, perfectionism was a way of hiding. I would show up, but just not be there. Was, I was checked out a bit on my own art. Wait, when you say perfectionism, you're saying that that just kept you from doing it, making your own art. It was a way of, much. it was a place to hide. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, yeah. there are recordings by John Coltrane readily available 
if you can't make something as good as that, then people should just buy John Coltrane records. <laughs> Horrible. Um, and I know. I know. I don't. I don't totally that, disagree with that in some ways. I mean, like people it. should buy du- John Coltrane records, of <laughs> well, course, because he's he's the best. But it, it was like a form of ego masquerading as selflessness or, or something. No, but, it's a it's it's. It's negative self-talk. Well, it, I think the thing, the thing, that, the place where I'm at now, it just has to be coming from a place of trying to honor the songs that I'm hearing in my head yeah. and put them out into the world. And everybody is uniquely qualified to offer something. And uh, it's incumbent on me to try to find what it is that I'm qualified to say. I, I've gotten to the point now where I'm insane enough to think that it's our duty. I mean, if you've got a story to tell, please tell the story. I just think it's people's obligation. That could mean like, playing it playing it in a hotel lobby to two people or going to absolutely. a nursing home and playing it for folks there. Or it can mean trying to put out an album yeah. and like market sure. it. It can mean any of I those mean, things. As you pointed out to me recently, think of all of the musicians that we don't know about from the from the last million years yeah before the history of recorded music and yeah the idea of recording music uh, on a physical format or even you know and digital files is a blip uh in the history of music think about like you know 500 years ago if you wrote a song you you know i don't know i guess you'd probably be lucky if if it got passed around the town or people, it turned into some kind of oral tradition thing. Oral, this idea that we're building a legacy by making records is kind of phony because, um, you know, the records... No one's going to know in 200 years. Yeah, probably not. And and even if... But that's not what matters. And so that's what we were saying, I think, in that earlier conversation about all the people that have made contributions... The real legacy is however it affects humanity as a ripple over time or whatever, or how it affects the world. We're all contributing to this giant web of stories and knowledge and things that we've created. I think it's comforting to to know that most musicians, even most great genius level musicians over the course of history are forgotten. The songs are not ours. We're just um, borrowing yep. them for a second and ushering them into the world in some way. I totally agree. It's like we're a radio station. So it almost doesn't matter. The ability to continue or to sustain a career doing it um, to a large extent depends on whether or not people like it or are willing to show up or pay for it. So -hmm. that's what causes a lot of, uh, it causes uh, lots of conflict, (laughs) I think, with artists. That's just the system that we're in right now, you know? for anything that you offer to the mm-hmm. world. That pretty much wraps it that up. That wraps it up. Nothing matters yeah. and everything matters. <laughs> yes, both things. Well, thanks for talking with me today. Thanks, Joe. All right, I'm going to hit stop on this thing. Okay. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Mary Timoney and Joe Wong for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and check out all the great written pieces at TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.